It all begins with the plan for the ultimate retirement adventure, RVing around Australia. And at some point during the planning process, he realizes that it'd be great to have a small vehicle towed behind the RV so that when he's set up at a campsite, he can jump in this small vehicle, head off and explore, or maybe grab some food and drink. Well, that search brings him to the motorcycle. The motorcycle's perfect. Put it right on the back of the RV. But that motorcycle turns out to be an adventure in itself. And it does land him in trouble. Big trouble. Well, really big trouble. The kind of trouble where you need to be evacuated. And in this case, the people who help him are the Royal Flying Doctors Service. Now, once recovered, he realizes just how great the service is and sets out to raise some money to help the Royal Flying Doctors. But it doesn't end up where he planned or where he thought it would. Instead, on a stretcher. The Outback Way, the longest shortcut. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Doug spent his career teaching happily, but when he was retiring, adventure was on his mind. So, being pragmatic, he traveled the world immediately after retirement by traditional means and then began planning a trip to explore his own country, Australia, by RV. His plan was to purchase a large RV to see the sights, roam the countryside looking for adventure, and it was in that planning, in that planning for that RV adventure, that Doug discovers the motorcycle and, well, it completely changes his world. Okay, my name is Doug Mullet. I'm from Werribee, near Melbourne, in Victoria, Australia. I'm retired. I have been for about 13 years now. And my previous employment, in fact, all my working life, except for short stints, was working for the government in the education system as a teacher. Uh, Currently, of course, we're in lockdown, and so we're not going anywhere. Doug, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. And you're a a show supporter as well, and I want to thank you for that as well. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I believe that, like in a lot of things where people do poor jobs, they should be criticised constructively, of course, for it. But where people do a good job, they deserve positive criticism uh, or praise, if you like it, and uh, where they're in a position where you can do so, support. Mm, well, I like that. You know, it, it, well, you're, I was sitting there listening to you talk about what it is you, you've done for a living. You've been a teacher. And I, I was thinking, it's interesting when it comes to motorcyclists, how very rarely does somebody come on, in, unless they're professionals, very rarely does someone come on and sort of describe themselves as a motorcyclist. You're a motorcyclist, you're a rider, yet you're, your life is so different, you know, any, as each one of our lives are. It's just interesting to hear that. You know, it's interesting to, to see the, um, the different things that people do, yet we have this common thread being the motorcycle. Totally correct there, Jim. And uh, I only fell into it accidentally. Um, my, I'd had uh, 
my first time being on the back of a powered two-wheeled vehicle when my father was thinking about buying a second-hand Vespa back in the late 1950s, and uh, that was quite interesting. Uh, my second time was on the pillion of a motorcycle travelling from Melbourne University down to the city. Uh, a student from the country gave me a lift down and I complimented her on her riding and said how long had she had her licence and she floored me because she said, well, I'm going for my learners tomorrow. <laughs> Not what you want to hear when you're on the back of somebody's motorcycle. No, well, fortunately, I didn't hear it until I got off. Hmm. I want to talk about um, about your travel. Now, you worked as a teacher, as you said. Then you went off and you did, I, I think you did two round-the-world trips? Yeah. When I retired, Jim, I uh, gave myself a retirement from work holiday. And then in the following year, to travel a bit overseas because I knew I probably wouldn't be able to later because of either money or health. Uh, so I spent 142 days in the first half of the year travelling through the US, a uh, little bit of Canada, very small part of England, and then 52 days around Western Europe in a lease car and came home. And I was glad I hadn't made my holiday any longer because I'd run out of Vegemite on the second last day in Japan. Oh, man, and I know that sounds funny, <laughs> but because I was travelling on my own, uh, I tended to get a bit homesick every so often. And toast with Vegemite in the morning brought me back to earth. What, Doug, I, I don't even know where to go with this. We've talked about Vegemite, of course, on Raw because we've got Shirley and Brian, your um, your your fellow countrymen. Um, Vegemite is like is like uh, I don't know some sort of linseed oil paste. I think is something like that. But obviously, you Australians really love that. I think a photograph though would have might maybe did you some good of home. No, no, the photograph didn't do the same. The toast was was what did it. And uh, by the way, Brian and Shirley um, were guests of mine at the Lions Club I belong to in Werribee and spoke about their adventures. Mm. And people had come along and thought, you know, oh, bikey's going to talk. And by the time Brian and Shirley were halfway through, they could have done anything and they would have got a clap. People were so entranced by them. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. Hey, well, now your trip, now you're, you're saying there's 142 days and then 52 days. So was it two round-the-world trips you did or was it two trips? Yes. Where it was two round-the-world. So where does the second one come in and, and what makes you decide to do that? Uh, the second one was because it may sound funny, but I didn't want to be in tourist places at tourist times. So in the Northern Hemisphere summer, I wanted to be at home so there wouldn't be too many tourists around. So I got that chance to have a break. And uh, then in August, I flew out to Scandinavia and landed at Rovaniemi and did a tour by bus of Finland, uh, Norway and Sweden and got to see Santa Claus land and <laughs> learn the almost essential skill of lassoing reindeer. But then from um, Finland, I took a bus into Russia and stopped at Murmansk, went by rail to Moscow, did the uh, boat trip from Moscow to St. Petersburg and then went back to Moscow and spent quite an enjoyable week there and then took off on the Trans-Siberian uh, across to Vladivostok and had a very interesting time on the train and met some great Russians. Uh, I loved Russia. I found that it was nothing like what I had expected. Uh, after Russia, I flew to Beijing and uh, spent eight or nine days in China uh, at Beijing and 
as in Moscow and a few other places, I found that the best way to visit the big cities was to walk around them and just have a look, keep your eyes open and you see things that the average tourist doesn't see because you're bustling from one hotspot to another. Mm-hmm. But uh, after I'd been around uh, Xi'an and Beijing, but then uh, I came back from Beijing to Moscow via the Trans-Mongolian, uh, which was a, an eye-opener in itself. And this is where things all come together because you're looking out the train window at the Mongolian steppes. And, of course, now I've read about people, including Graham, who have ridden across there. So it actually meant something to me afterwards because I heard of their adventures of bikes falling over, of the rivers, of going along grassy tracks where you could barely make anything out. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what it's like. When you were on this trip, motorcycles didn't come into your mind at all. I had no concept there, Jim, whatsoever of ever having a motorbike or riding a motorbike. Um, Nothing like that. So what got you, I think it was 2010, you you went for your learners. Why that all of a sudden? Okay. What happened was I returned home at the end of 2008 and you and your listeners will realise that like 2020, 2008 was marked by a rather traumatic event and money that I had put aside to purchase a motorhome to travel through Australia, uh, it wasn't what I expected. It was considerably less. <laughs> and uh, consequently, Sorry, I Sorry, I don't mean to well, laugh, but, but I mean, I, I'm laughing because I think you're laughing as well. It's It's easy in hindsight, but at the time, it's pretty devastating. That's right. I mean, I would have been easier to put a deposit on the motorhome before I'd left and uh, arranged to pay for it and I would have had the money, Uh, but I didn't then. And then I thought, no, look, if I get a motorhome, the problem is what happens when I want to go somewhere where I can't take the motorhome or I want to go down the street to buy a newspaper, a bottle of milk or something? I need some other form of transport. And at the time, I was interested in a small diesel four-wheel drive. And while I was travelling around, I thought, well, how do people do this in a motorhome? And then in West Australia, I saw two motorbikes hanging from the back of a motorhome. Mm. And being the shy retiring type, I walked up to them and and asked them uh, how they did it, what the advantages were. And after about two minutes, they'd sold me. Then the next year, that was uh, 2010, my sister and nephews bought me a 14,000-foot tandem skydive. And when I got to the bottom of that, I thought, well, this hasn't killed me, uh, so I'll do something else that people thought would kill me. So I went out and got my motorbike licence. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure as one jump really says anything <laughs> as far as surviving something. I mean, that, that can be a lot right. too. It was, it was one jump into another jump and uh, even there things come together because in Victoria we have lambs conditions, learners on the motorbikes, so you're only allowed to ride either small capacity or low-power bikes. And I didn't even know how to go about finding a suitable motorbike. And I started looking around and lo and behold, at one dealership, I ran into someone I knew. And he said, oh, this is what you want. And it was relatively cheap. It was relatively small. So I got that uh, and then went for my learners and uh, did a two-day course, got it. And, yeah, I went and got about... uh, 20,000 kilometres of uh, practice up on the bike, uh, then went for my licence and uh, got that about, uh, what was it, eight months after I'd done my learners. I then went back and found this mate who was still selling motorbikes. I explained what I wanted it for and he said, oh, what you want is a Suzuki V-Strom. So I walked over to this V-Strom 
and are set on it, um, it just felt it just felt right. Took the bike home, and even though it was still a bit tall at that stage, uh, it just felt beautiful to ride. You didn't have to do anything. You went into a corner and you both just went around the corner. Mm-hmm. There was no effort involved. You wanted to pass someone, you just leaned and opened the throttle and you were next to them. You wanted to go back in, you just leaned the other way and eased off on the throttle and you were back in front of them. Um, it was absolutely magnificent. And then I got the lowering kit for it, uh, which was variable dog bones and variable side stand. So it was great. I could uh, flat foot. Um, I could wind it up when I had a lot of luggage on uh, or if I had a pillion passenger on. Well, but it, but at this point, when you, you were buying the bike, were, were you buying it for a trip at this point or is this still thinking of maybe taking it with an RV? Taking it with the RV, that yeah. was the plan. Um but the problem was that as I started to ride it, um, I fell in love with riding. I'd fallen in love with the bike already, but I then fell in love with riding and the uh, the freedom. It was it was very much like when I'd started to learn to drive. You knew what the area you were going through was like because, of course, you smelled it through the open window. But current cars, air conditioning, windows up all the time. Um, great for safety and everything, but you're cut off from the environment you're in. Uh, on the bike, I can tell uh, about a kilometre ahead if there's uh, grass mowing by the verge because I can smell it. Mm-hmm. I can tell you when I'm in daring country because I can smell it. And I also found why you don't stick too close behind stock crates on the highway because, first of all, you can smell the cattle and, secondly, uh, the truck driver does not stop so that the cattle can use the facilities Mm -hmm. by the side of the road. And uh, so if something happens, you get to know it because you either smell it or it's all over you. So stock crates you hang back from or you go straight around very quickly. That's a good tip. Now, for anybody in North America, we don't call them stock crates here, but any any truck running livestock, in particular cattle, uh, that's um, definitely something to watch for and pay attention to. Yeah, well, here, of course, you can get up to uh, five or six trailers with stock in them. So it's a long run. Yeah, and with that size of train, it, that's a lot more affluent. That's correct, and you've got to get past it. And um, so you've got to choose your time and otherwise you've got to hang back quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So the motorhome, you, you mentioned you bought the motorhome then. No, no, I haven't got around to that yet. Oh, yet. I see. You haven't bought it yet. Okay. So you, you, you went and you, you're thinking you get the bike first to go in the motorhome, but you still need the motorhome to mount the bike on. That's right. But mm. the, the bike is considerably cheaper. Um, right. So I've got the bike and I've fallen in love with it. And then I find that a cousin of mine from England, she and her hubby are visiting their son and daughter-in-law up in Townsville. Now, Townsville only happens to be about 3,000-odd kilometres away from where I live. So I think, well, this is a great excuse for a good bike ride. Uh, So I organise a bike ride in November, which is getting on towards our summer, so it's a bit warm up in the north where Townsville is in the north of Queensland and uh, head off up there. So that takes me three days to get up and I learn an awful lot about riding motorbikes and roads on the way up. And one of the things I learned was that you have to be careful where roadworks are on. A lot of our roads here are clay and gravel and dirt which are formed up and rolled and then sprayed with bitumen and they have stones rolled into them, uh, something like about half-inch blue metal, uh, which for anyone else is about uh, 10 to 15 mil gravel pieces and they're just rolled into the surface 
and you can drive over that slowly. If you drive over it quickly, particularly with a heavy vehicle, you pick up some of the stones and instead of laying flat with the surface, they then sit up almost vertically. And some of those small pieces of gravel have sharp points on them. Now, on a car or a truck tyre, it doesn't make much difference. A bike tyre is a lot smaller. So at my first roadworks, I found what happens when the point goes through the tyre. You get a flat tyre. Roadworks, by the way, for anyone else, is, is road construction. Well, yes, these were actually repairing the roads. Right, yeah. Uh, that's what I mean by construction, any sort of road repairs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the summertime thing, isn't it? Any time in the summertime you're heading out, everybody's going to run into road repairs. Uh, we run into them here all the time, Jim, mm. unfortunately. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll make use of my auto club membership. So I rang up and a tow truck came up and picked me up and took me back to the nearest town. Uh, and I got that repaired and headed off um, and I was heading through the inland. Then up in Queensland, I had exactly the same thing happen, but... I thought, well, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'll repair it myself. So I did with a string, pumped everything up, packed the bike back up, by which time the tyre was back down again. You did with a string? Uh, string meaning the rubber pieces that you find in repair kits. Tubeless plug sort of thing, right. Yeah, so you, you, yes. you put it on your, your tool, you ream it out and then and shove the plug in because you're running tubeless tyres. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I plugged that up and pumped the tyre up and packed everything back up only to find it flat again. So I put some water where I'd repaired it, no leak there, and I couldn't find where the other leak was. And I was, at this stage, I'm running out of water. I'm 150 kilometres either end from civilization. So I thought, no, I'll use the auto club again. Uh, but this time I had to send a message because unlike a lot of the rest of the world, uh, mobile phone signal is in a lot of outback areas restricted to around the towns. So what happened was I had to send a message with someone so that when they got to the next town, they could ring. And uh, so the auto club came out and uh, I got back. It was a Sunday afternoon. They couldn't repair it then. Uh, and then the next morning, they repaired it with a string too. And uh, so I got home and then I thought, hey, this is actually great. I must do a bit more of this touring on the bike. So the next thing was to go over to West Australia. Uh, I w originally was raised in Perth and I used to travel over three to four times a year by car. And I thought, well, okay, not much difference in the bike between the bike and a car. And uh, so I headed off to, to Perth. That was okay. The only thing was I found that it's a lot more tiring. Even with a good bike, it's far more tiring riding a bike than it is driving a car. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I got over to Perth and then I decided to come back a different way. I decided I was going to come back via Cairns. Now, if you're looking at a map of Australia, I've come from Melbourne, basically across the south to the west coast to Perth, and I'm now going to go northeasterly until I run out of land, and then I'm going to go south back home. It's called uh, Australia's Longest Shortcut. It's only 5,500 kilometres across there. It's Australia's Longest Shortcut. Australia's longest shortcut. And I thought, oh, this is great. Yes, I'll do that. I'd read up a little bit and I knew there was quite a bit of dirt and that didn't worry me. Then two days after leaving, I've left Laverton, uh, Laverton, sorry, and I'm coming out of Laverton on the seal and I think, oh, well, this is great. The road's better than I thought it would be. And then I see a sign, Sand Road. The next sign said 100 kilometres. And my experience of riding on sand up to that point had been about two kilometres. And, uh, of course, by the time that I thought, what am I going to do, I was in the sand. And I thought, now, just a minute, I've read about this. You open the throttle up, 
you lean back, you don't grip the handlebars as tight as you would on a sealed road, and you don't make any abrupt movements. You just move your body in order to steer the bike. And within two minutes, I felt it perfectly at home. Um, it was amazing. It was one of those cases where I knew the theory. I'd never done the practice and put into that situation. I put the theory into practice and it worked. Hmm. So um, I had uh, 100 kilometres of uh, riding on sand and then it went back to dirt. So that was a bit of a relief and a bit of uh, seal. But I'll tell you what, when you're um, at that stage 64 and you've done 100 kilometres on sand for the first time in your life, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So I pulled into the roadhouse that was there um, just after lunchtime and had some lunch and decided to spend the time there overnight and ran into another motorcyclist who was repairing his bike and we had a bit of a chat and uh, he heard what I was doing. He said, oh, you must have a lot of experience. And I said, no. <laughs> uh, and when we uh, exchanged tales, it was quite interesting. So I head out the next morning and, again, there's a mixture of sand and dirt, but that doesn't worry me. And then near a place called Warburton, I run into Sealed Road and a lot of that is for apart from anything else, well, flying doctor aircraft to land on uh, so that they can pick up people uh, because there's quite a few incidents and accidents and a few local communities near there where people need to be evacuated. And I stopped there to take some photographs and lo and behold, this other motorcyclist who I'd met the day before pulled up. So we're taking photos of each other and uh, having quite a bit of a, a chat and uh, then ended up at that particular place filling up with fuel. And then later that night uh, at another place called Warakuna, um, filling up with fuel and staying there the night together. Uh, so we ended up having a, a good chat and finding out a lot about each other. Well, and at this point, had you done any, um, any research into motorcycle travel at this point? Were you getting a feeling for what was going on out there? Absolutely no idea, Jim. No idea that came that. later. Nice. But um, there was a, a very, very embarrassing section at Warakuna. I had come in, I'd booked in, and uh, the room that I'd got was in a U-shaped building which had a lot of sand in the middle. So, of course, I come in to do a U-turn so that I can park right out the front of where I'm going to be. And as I'm starting to pull up, I'm doing a tight turn and, of course, do the rookie's mistake of using the front brakes. No damage, of course, uh, because it's soft sand and the, the panniers are keeping everything off the ground anyway, but I'm under the bike. Mm. And because of the weight, I can't get out. And three people run from nowhere to help me up. They're all women. So the three women lift the bike up a bit and I can get out from underneath and then all four of us get it up and um, I managed to get the bike over. And one of the ladies said to me, oh, where are you headed? And I said, oh, I'm going through Alice Springs. And she said, oh, are you going to the Ulysses Convention there? And I said, oh, no, no. So that was interesting. Anyway, the next morning we headed off. Now, uh, one of the problems in local communities is that petrol sniffing is a great problem. And so the petrol pumps are in cages locked up and you have to open them up to get your fuel. And to minimise that problem, in a lot of areas, they don't have unleaded petrol. Uh, what you get is opal fuel. And opal fuel is really... Oh, well, the only way I can describe it, it's probably incorrect, but it's like range fuel, which was about 60 to 65 octane, and it's boosted up by adding benzene into it. 
and a lot of modern engines don't like it. And I had now put three tankfuls of this opal fuel into my Susie, my motorbike. And it was starting to run rougher and rougher. And there was a place where I could have refueled, but I didn't need to, called Docker River. It was on a, a very sandy road and there are a lot of deep truck ruts and they were all going into the town. Now, by this stage, poor Susie was running so roughly that I could only get about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 revs out of her and only third gear. So what's happened was that, of course, I applied the theory of learning back, opening the throttle and everything to get out of the rut, but there wasn't enough throttle. So I went into Docker River even though I didn't want to <laughs> because the road literally took me in there. So I did some more uh, refuelling at Docker River, which was, uh, again, a mistake because when I left there, it was running even worse. This is where another incident happened. Um, I'm on the road, going along quite comfortably, when the back starts squirming. Okay, I've got a flat tyre. I'm not going to put uh, a string in. I'll use this sealant. The only thing is I put the sealant in, went to blow the tyre up and nothing happened. So I went to the other side of the tyre and found the sealant all out on the road because there was a cut about, <laughs> well, 10 to 15 centimetres long, four to six inches long in the tyre. Mm. And I thought... No, a string isn't going to work under these circumstances. And I thought, well, this is another case. I'm going to have to uh, send a note to get a tow truck. And along comes the other motorcyclist, Julian, who I'd run into before. And he happened to have a sat phone, so I rang up. He stayed with me a, a few minutes and uh, everything was right. I had enough water. I wasn't going to worry about things. I thought I was only about uh, 40 or 50k away from the Olgas, uh, but they're actually a huge range. And by the time the truck came out, he said, no, no, we're 90 kilometres away. So uh, he's got the bike up on the back and he's had a look at the tyre on the back and he's radioed in, because of course no phone, he's uh, radioed in to... Uh, the place that he's from, and they've ordered a tyre so that it'll come in the next morning. Mm. So uh, I explained to him the engine had been running rough, and he said, oh, yes, it's definitely the Opal. When you leave Yulara, fill up with premium fuel, and that should clean it out. Um, so I got back to the, the depot. Uh, they rang me over to a place where I could stay. And the next morning they rang up, yes, the bike is ready, got on the bike, and went and filled it up with premium fuel. I'm now on sealed road all the way, and it didn't run any better. Now, by the time that I got to Alice Springs, I was first gear, 15 kilometres an hour. That night I arranged for accommodation at a youth hostel, and first thing in the morning I rang up the motorbike dealers. Oh, yes, no problem, but we can't even look at it for two days. Anyway, um, it took a long time, but eventually I got the bike back and uh, the difficulty was that the time I'd allocated to riding across to Cairns had now all gone. So I decided to ride down to Adelaide, which is where um, the rest of the family lives. And, of course, being in all this heat and all this dry, what happens when I go to set out the next morning, it's pouring rain. So I had to go back in the room, change into wet weather gear and then ride down. Uh, so that was all right. She ran like a dream down to Adelaide. But, of course, my idea of doing the shortcut had sort of been killed because um, I didn't have the time. So... One of the things that I'd wanted to go to was a place called Cameron Corner, which is where Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia meet. You can literally put your foot, provided you're tall enough, 
and can stand on top of the peg in three states. So I was going to ride up to there and have a look at Cameron Corner. And people said, oh, there's a lot of sand road and everything. And I said, yeah, that's all right. I know about sand. I can do that. So I headed up to a little town called Tibberborough, spend the night there. And like everywhere else, where it's desert, it's either dry or wet. So I wake up the next morning and it's pouring rain mm. to the extent that in the street outside, which was sealed, children running from one side of the, to the other were in danger of being swept away and drowned. Oh, wow. And as it turned out, you couldn't go anywhere that day anyway. So what happened was the next morning the roads were going to be opened but later in the day and I thought, no, no, I've wasted too much time. Uh, I'll just have to go straight away. So I was talking to the RMS, that's Road and Maritime Services. Uh, this was about half past 12 and he said, yeah, I'm just going out to uh, change the signs so you can leave now if you like. Well, I'm going to stop Doug right there because after this, everything changes for the rest of the story. We're going to take just a short break and we're going to be right back. Stay with us. So a while ago, um, I think it was, uh, yes, it was March 2019. We had a couple on the show that had traveled the world on a KTM uh, 640 Adventure 2-Up. It was Heidi and David Winters. Now, on that trip, David broke his wrist and he had to ride. It's actually quite a story. You'll have to go back and listen. As a matter of fact, I'll put a link in the show notes um, of this episode for that one. So if, if you go to the show, notes, uh, the show notes for this episode, that link will be in there. It was March 14th of 2019. Anyway, there David is riding his bike. Heidi is on the back. Um, his, his wrist is broken. It's his right wrist, the throttle hand. And, um, I think he had a throttle lock at the time on the bike, but it was, it was one that mounts on the bar end or something. It was difficult to operate. I remember he was very frustrated with it and he was in for a, a long, painful ride, but it got him thinking about that throttle lock. And he thought there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a better design. And it was that experience on that trip with the two of them just riding around on their KTM that motivated David to redesign, to reinvent the throttle lock, which he did. And he founded the Atlas Throttle Lock Company um, with Heidi. Now, um, in case you're not aware of what a, a throttle lock does, basically it holds your throttle in position as you ride. It's great for those long stretches of road. I use it a fair bit for just holding the throttle in position. So um, that, you know, that often will become a pain, uh, not physically a pain, but just be a nuisance. Your hand will get tired holding the grip, et cetera. So it just holds the throttle in position. Basically, people call it a cruise control, but it's not really a cruise control. It doesn't give throttle at a hill or anything. It just holds it, like sort of locks it in the one position. So anyway, back to the Atlas throttle lock. The end result is that David was inspired to design from his and Heidi's trip around the world, this incredible two-button throttle lock that's unlike any other one you find on the market. You activate it with your thumb by just simply pressing a button, you press to activate, and you press the other button to release. Now, it doesn't hold the throttle so hard that you can't overpower it. You can't. It's easy. But the buttons are so ergonomically designed, they're, they're put in the correct place, that pressing the button is easy and natural. And uh, this thing is a, just an, an incredible feat of engineering. Apparently, you can take it off one bike and put it on another bike. It, it fits a lot of models. Anyway, have a look at their website. It is atlasthrottlelock.com. Uh, and of course, we'll have a link to that on our website if you go and look at our sponsors. It's atlasthrottlelock.com. And hey, make sure you're you, when you're talking with them, throwing them an email or anything, tell them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. No doubt you've got a computer that's connected to the internet a smartphone that's connected online to all your favorite social media accounts. We're very connected nowadays in our cyber world that we spend a good portion of our time in. But how connected are you with your motorcycle? Being connected to your bike is a necessity if you're trying to increase your riding skills. And, and if you hit any kind of dirt at all, which every rider is going to do it, even if you're a street rider, you're going to hit dirt. In fact, you cannot ride, or not ride well without being connected if you're running uh, your stock foot pegs, then you're you're not really connected. You need IMS products foot pegs designed specifically for riders like you and I 
by riders tested in extreme conditions that only like the highest level riders get to. They're built in the USA. They're warranted for life. They look great on the bike as well. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs to suit your style of riding. Have a look and grab a set of foot pegs that you can not only stand on, but you can depend on. IMSproducts.com. And uh, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Uh, this was about half past 12, and he said, yeah, I'm just going out to uh, change the signs so you can leave now if you like. No, hang on. He, he has the roads closed. Why? Uh, the roads were closed because of the rain, uh, because there was money? a lot of gravel roads. And the other thing is that where creeks cross the road, they're sealed with concrete, but after the rain, the sand and gravel washed into them. And... You drive into those with a wheeled vehicle and it's just like putting the brakes on hard. You just stop. Mm. Vehicles would be stranded in them so you can't travel on the roads until they're dry and these floodways have been cleaned out by graders. So um, he'd found out, yes, all that had been done. So I take off. This is about a quarter to one. And I'm heading south and the road is partly sealed on the crests and everything. It's partly concreted in the floodways, but the rest of it is just gravel. Now, at one point, and I'm about oh, 40 to 50k south of Tibberborough, might be a little bit further south, I'm on the gravel and there's a puddle in front of me. And I think I'll go around the puddle because I can see just up ahead the road is sealed. Bad mistake. The next thing, I'm picking up water bottles and other things from the gravel road and putting them on the edge of the bitumen with absolutely no idea of who I am, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, where I'm from or where I'm going to. And... This four-wheel drive comes along from the same area as I had been and the husband and the wife have a quick conflab and the husband comes over and coerces me into sitting in the tail of their four-wheel drive and having a cup of tea and a piece of cake. And they can see that I'm obviously confused and everything and they ring up the people who have the station right near there. Now, a station is what your North American friends would call a ranch. So they come out, the owner and a station hand. So the station hand runs me back to the station in uh, a truck and the station owner rides my bike back. But poor Susie is looking pretty battered at this stage and uh, the wife of the station owner has a look at me and rings up the flying doctor's because that's the only medical service you've got. So uh, flying doctors ask her a few things. She looks at me and asks me a few things, and it's decided that uh, I'm going to have to be medically evacuated. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's no local airstrip there, so there's going to have to be an ambulance bring me back to Tibberborough. Now, what condition are you in that they're asking you questions? Uh, well, at this stage, I'm compass menti, but I've got a graze on my forehead, which I found out later was when I went over and I was under the bike when I slid, the fine gravel on the road pushed through the vents on the top of the full face helmet. So the gravel on the road actually scratched my forehead. Mm. But of course, I didn't know that at the time and neither did they. And because... Um, I've been non-compass menti from, for quite a, a few minutes. Um, they had decided there was probably danger of concussion plus other things. And by this stage, my side was starting to ache a little bit. And uh, so they said, oh, yes, you can give him some Panadol, uh, but nothing more, and the ambulance will be there in about an hour. So um, I'm standing there with the station owner and his wife chatting away and their children come out from their school of the air session 
And as soon as the kids realise I'm a retired teacher, we start swapping kid jokes. So, of course, the kids come up with one or two I hadn't heard and I started to laugh. Bad mistake. Where my side was hurting, my side is now badly paining. And then the ambulance arrived and I sat in the back of the ambulance with a pillow and my arm up to try and relieve the pain. And uh, they took me back. Takes an hour and a half to get back. Now, I had a few glasses of water at the station and then they tell me the plane is going to be in about a quarter past seven. Seven o'clock, we go out to the airstrip and the Ambos do a roo run, which is shooting up and down the railway uh, runway with the lights on high beam to make sure there's no kangaroos. And the plane comes in and lands. Um, the nurse comes out. I walk into the plane. She said, would you like to sit down or lay down? I say, I'd love to lay down. Big mistake. Have you ever had broken ribs, Jim? No, but um, you do learn in first aid that that's probably not the best position. You're better off to sit, probably leaning forward in a, in a comfortable, whatever makes you comfortable at that point. Oh, well, what happened was that uh, I hadn't gone into that in first aid, um, so even though I'd done a number of courses to that point. So what happened was I said oh, I'd prefer to lay down. I laid down and I felt as if someone had driven a wooden stake through my heart. Mm. And we had to pick up another casualty from a little town called Moomba, which is a company town. It's run by Santos. So um, we got into Adelaide Airport, got the x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs. So uh, I get home. I go and visit my local doctor. I said, how long? And he said, oh, probably about eight to ten weeks. And at the end of ten weeks, I just woke up in the morning and I thought, no, I don't need painkillers anymore. And that was it. I was right. But during that time, I'd gone up and I'd retrieved Susie, had the bike repaired. So that was all right. I went off riding again, no problems. But by this time, I found that my little sojourn with the Royal Flying Doctor Service has cost them around the $6,000 mark. Anyway, I thought, Look, being a good person, what I should do is I should raise some money for the flying doctors. I will try and raise $6,000. How will I do it? I'll get people to sponsor me for a ride. I will do, instead of Perth to Cairns, I will do Cairns to Perth on the mm. longest shortcut. Um, so I set up a uh, Everyday Hero page and it's still running, by the way, if anyone feels generous and uh, contacted the flying doctors and everything, and I headed up north to Cairns. Now, so I headed up. This is going to be great, though, because this is your, your second adventure. You probably feel like you've sort of learned something, I guess, on the, on the first one and the crash and, and everything. I mean, you've got some experience under your belt. That's right. And uh, the big advantage was because I was on the bike and uh, doing the ride, I could actually explain to people what it was about and the advantages of the flying doctor. But what, what an incredible service, uh, I mean, they offer. And obviously it's government. It's it's run by the government. No, no, it's not government. Oh, it's not government. I always thought this was a government, government service. Oh, no, no. Um, it's run by contributions, donations, and it also raises money by having clinics and so on for the government. So the government pays for those. And the profit that it gets from those helps pay for the other emergency services. And now in Victoria, it's also doing road ambulance services. Wow. And no government funding for that? No direct government funding. Gee. Uh, the planes come out from America or now they're coming out from Switzerland. And the cost of the plane, believe it or not, is the cheapest part. It's fitting it out that is the dearest part. So um, so I'm going through a few other places and uh, spreading the word there. And then I get to a town called Bullia, which is on the edge of Queensland. And from there, 
through to Hearts Range, which is basically a community and a police station. That road is all unsealed and I have no problem on that. And I get through to Alice Springs and uh, in Alice Springs, I, uh, as you can tell, Jim, I'm quite shy and retiring. So I get a the local newspaper to do a big article on me and I go to the Flying Doctor Visitor Service. I head off from there and I go out to what is variously called Ayers Rock, which is now the commercial settlement, uh, Ulara, which is the tourist settlement, and Uluru, which is the actual rock in the surrounding area. And I spend a few days there and I get quite a few people interested and a few people donate. And then on the Sunday morning, I head out from Ulara. Now, I've loaded up with uh, liquid. I head out on the road. Yes, there's a bit of sand, bit of dirt and all this sort of stuff. It's okay. I see a four-wheel drive parked on the other side of the road and I slow down thinking, you know, if they're in trouble, perhaps I can do something because I'm now carrying an EPIRB and a Spot Tracker Gen 3. But the lady of the vehicle waves to me from behind the vehicle and he's just uh, washing out a cup. Uh, They've just stopped for morning tea and they're about to head off. And I'm on what I would term orange dirt at this stage. And just in front of me is a red sand hill. Now, if you can imagine the terrain, it's basically orange dirt and there's longitudinal red sand hills which have been swept across. Uh, All you need is a few million years and a few breezes and you get these range of sand hills. And sand is bright red, so it's very, very different to the orange. So, okay, I go into the sand hill. No problem. I change the riding for sand. And about 150 metres later, I see the road turn back to orange. How fast are you going? At this stage, I'm going about uh, 90, 95 kilometres now. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I'm doing all the right things for riding on sand. I get into the orange and I relax and start riding for dirt. Big mistake. Guess what? It was orange. It wasn't orange dirt. It was orange sand. Mm. And you can imagine now I've got the weight right back on the front wheel. I've throttled back a bit. Uh, I have absolutely no control and the front starts swashing out. I suppose I would have gone about 250 metres and I suddenly realised I've lost control. The next moment, although I have no idea, it must have been about a minute later, I wake up, I'm flat on the road. Unbelievable. Uh, And considering this run is all about raising money for the flying doctors that help you on the first run. Yes. So... um, I'm lying flat on the road. I've just completed a first aid course on motorbike safety and I'm thinking I'm on my back. Obviously, I've landed on my back, which means spinal and neck damage is the first thing I think about. I'm not going to move. I'd better set off my uh, my EPIRB. I go to move my right hand and suddenly everything starts hurting So I move my right hand with my left hand so that I can get to where the EPIRB is to set it off. And then I hear a voice behind me, are you okay? I said, no. Uh, If you have a set phone, can you ring triple O? If not, can you get my EPIRB and set it off? And he said, oh, it's okay. I've got a set phone. Um, By now I'm laying there with this towel under my neck and the pillow beside my helmet. So we managed to get through the next uh, two hours or so and then the police and the ambulance from Mulara arrive at the scene. So the police uh, put the motorbike behind some cover and as you'll realise in a desert there isn't much cover and uh, loaded the rest of the stuff in the boot and I took a camera laptop and a few other things with me and uh, we headed off in the ambulance. So we get back to the um, ambulance depot in Yulara, 
the health service there. And uh, at this stage, they've determined that I've got a punctured lung, apart from everything else. So they're going to fly a doctor out from Alice Springs to do an emergency op on me and put a chest drain in. So then uh, he had to wait until I was stabilised and then I got loaded into the plane and uh, we flew back to Alice Springs and uh, I'm in being X-rayed, MRI'd, CAT scanned, the whole works again. And, uh, well, you got six ribs broken, two of them in two places, so Mm. you've got two flails, and your shoulder blade is shattered. Um, And uh, I'm thinking, you know, what's this going to be like? But during that time, I'd caught up with a motorbike chap from Alice Springs who came in and visited me every day in hospital, for which I was grateful. But I'd met him on my way out, and he'd been going out to collect his motorbike which had fallen over in the dirt not far from where I was, but he'd only cracked a rib. Uh, So he understood and sympathised completely with me. And three days after I got home, I collapsed in the driveway. And that night I was in ICU because I had massive blood clots, which apparently cut oxygen going from my lungs into my bloodstream. Wow. What were the blood clots from? The blood clots apparently were from uh, inactivity between when I left hospital and when I got home because, of course, it was hurting. I didn't want to do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Susie had been stolen from the roadside, so I'd bought a new bike. That was that. And then I got an invite from the Royal Flying Doctor Service to speak at their annual general meeting that year. Oh, sure, you've used their service so much. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happened was I didn't realise there were two of us who were raising money for the flying doctor, both on motorbikes, who'd cost the Royal Flying Doctor Service more than we had raised. (laughs) And you should have seen the amused looks at this AGM when after these young children who got up and told how they'd raised 20, even up to $100,000 for the flying doctor through activities they had organised. And here I am saying, well, I tried to raise money, (laughs) but I ended up having to be evacuated by the uh, flying doctor service. What's the message in that? What what do you take from that? Um, Well, the message is be careful. Um, The second message is I'd resolve not to put myself into danger because I was 65 when I did that. Mm -hmm. So I bought a four-wheel drive to run over the uh, areas of dirt that I thought I was going to fall over on the bike. Um, And uh, so now, of course, I've got to sell the four-wheel drive in order to buy the motorhome, which was the original reason why I wanted to get the bike. Wow, that's a that's just a, an, an incredible story of hardship, really. But I mean, I did notice that as you were talking there, the second trip that you did, you equipped yourself with an EPIRB and your um, satellite transceiver. So I mean, you were you were doing things. You were proactive. You learned from the first one, and you you tried to equip yourself better. You took the first aid course, as you said. What went wrong? Um, well, what went wrong was a misjudgment. Um, I can't blame it on anyone except myself. And what I learned out of it was never assume a road surface is of a particular design until you have been on it at least a few seconds. Mm -hmm. Don't look at it and assume that you know what it is. Ride it in the, uh, the most cautious way possible until you know what it is. And uh, the other one, which is with the EPIRB and the tracker, is you can't eliminate all danger. But what you do is you minimise the effects of the danger uh, by wearing all the gear and all the right gear and you minimise the time that it will take for services to reach you. And since then, um, I... Literally, I have cried a number of times 
by seeing people, in one case a truck driver who was delivering water, his truck got stuck in a floodway in sand, exactly as I said why the uh, floodways had to be cleaned out by graders. And if he had had an EPIRB or a PLB, all he had to do was set it off and wait. As it was, he went to walk and died. Mm. And in a lot of those rural areas, the, the road maintenance crew are out there all the time grading. And if the emergency services get a notification, quite often the quickest way is to actually ask if there's a grader within 10 or 20 kilometres and get them to go there because they've got a high-powered radio and they can describe the scene so that the best care can go out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the other one, of course, is that if you're lost and you set off an EPIRB, then you change what could be days or even weeks of searching and millions of dollars of costs and hundred up to a 1,000 people looking into a $5,000 helicopter trip. Yeah, yeah. All very good points. What, what about when it comes to um, uh, rider training? That, that's the one thing you didn't mention that you took. I, I'm not sure if you did. But what about rider training? What about um, maybe even some dirt training? Uh, well, this is where I said um, that I had learned in the course about the theory of sand riding and the instructor had gone through what you do and why you do it. Mm. And I had a little bit of a chance to do it uh, in the Grampians, as I said, uh, with a fellow rider. And both of us fell over in the sand there. Uh, And I thought, well, you know, okay. But I don't know, as a teacher, I'm a terrible student. Um, But as a teacher, I'm a good teach myself teacher. Mm. Um, so with someone else teaching me, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible. The other thing is, is, um, speed is a killer, obviously, literally no pun intended. It really is. And, um, when you get into places like that or into, into rough conditions, that speed just makes things so much worse. So, I mean, if you can slow down and and approach the the new road, the new section of the road, the change in terrain at a greatly reduced speed, that gives you a chance to find out what it's like first before you're you're moving at the high speed. Yeah, that's where it comes into uh, approach it cautiously until you know. Yeah. And once you know, then the vehicle, the surface and your experience can allow you to choose the best speed. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, you mentioned that you have all your your safety gear on, and I know you're just saying it's safety gear, but it's not really safety gear. It's it's actually just crash protection that we have on, and it's very minimal at that. You know, when you wear your helmet and you wear your riding suit, that is not going to stop you from getting hurt should you come off the bike, as as you well know. That is just there to try to try and mitigate some of the damage should you go down. And most of it is abrasion damage, with the exception of your helmet, which is abrasion and impact. But it's very minimal what it can do. And we got to realize that we're soft, squishy things, us humans, and we're delicate, very delicate. And we need to be very careful out there on our bikes. Yes, I uh, make the analogy that it's I swipe on the seatbelt every time I get into the car. And I put on all the gear any time I get onto the bike. Yeah. Well, Doug, I'm, I'm glad you're well and ready to ride again on your new bike. And um, I, I wish you the best of luck out there. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. That was Doug Mullet from his home in Werribee, Australia. He's retired from working, but is becoming a serious adventure rider. We've got some interesting photos from Doug's adventure, and including his loaded bike that you can see in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com.
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works in the background, and to you. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, we need your support. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you for your pannier, your toolbox, wherever. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And speaking of Raw, that is another show that we do. It comes out every month, and you need to subscribe separately. Drop by our website, Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.com and check out the show notes for every episode. We've got raw on there the whole bit. Have a look. AdventureRiderRadio.com. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!